Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. On today's episode, I'm speaking with the historian Jonathan Alter about his most recent book called His Very Best. It is the most comprehensive biography currently available of the 39th U.S. President Jimmy Carter. Carter was one of the few 20th century presidents to serve just a single term in office. And since there were virtually no substantive scandals in his presidency, and since he didn't preside over a war, his administration is kind of overlooked. And Jonathan Alter's explicit purpose in this biography, apart from simply presenting a comprehensive account of this president's life and moment, is to correct the popular, simple, reductive one-line appraisal that I think we've all heard about Jimmy Carter's presidency, which is that Jimmy Carter was a terrible president and a great ex-president. There was one part in the book, chronicling the early days of Carter's administration, somebody comments that Jimmy Carter was the third accidental president in a dozen years. Lyndon Johnson only took the presidency because his predecessor, JFK, got shot. Then Gerald Ford inherited the presidency, not because he was elected, but because Richard Nixon resigned. And then Jimmy Carter, a very kind-hearted Christian ray of Georgia sunshine, he was embraced by the nation in an hour of profound nihilism, simply because people were desperate and they didn't trust their government. They were paranoid about the war and communism and about the bomb and hippies and aliens. Jim Jones got 900 people to kill themselves during the Carter administration in the, in the, his, when he took his cult to Jonestown. The late 1970s, which encompassed the entirety of Carter's administration, were a weird time in American culture. There was a lot to be scared of, a lot to distrust, and then here comes Jimmy Carter. He's extending his hand, offering to lead the way, and he was just the nicest and most capable guy in the room, the most trustworthy, and so his election was basically the byproduct of his moment. That's one appraisal. And, and Alter doesn't give it that much attention in the course of his book because I don't think he agrees with it at all. He thinks that Carter was incredibly capable, a very savvy politician, and that he earned the presidency. And now that I've reached the end of his surprisingly propulsive 700-page biography, I'm inclined to side with Alter. I think Carter was a very capable president, and he was elected on the, on the grounds of his abilities. But the reason that this accidental president thing rang my bell, the idea that Jimmy Carter was just elected because he was seen as, like, sort of an optimistic ray of sunlight that was cutting through a decade of darkness or something, is because it's very similar to Quentin Tarantino's argument for why Rocky won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1977 instead of Taxi Driver. Rocky, in case you haven't seen the movie, is the triumphant story of a poor young boxer fighting the heavyweight championship of the world and ultimately losing that fight in, in the final minutes of the movie. But there's a feeling of triumph at the end of the movie anyways, which we'll get to in a minute. And Taxi Driver, on the other hand, is about an angsty, young cab driver, similar in some ways to the young fighter in Rocky, who's turned off by, by the crime and the debauchery of New York, and so, just as Rocky pursues his own brand of success, Travis Bickle, of, of Taxi Driver, pursues his own kind of justice by murdering a lot of strangers. Now, both of these movies came out in 1976, and the country was in such a state of despair, this is Tarantino's argument, so hungover from the bullshit with Nixon and the gas crisis and Vietnam, that even though Taxi Driver was a stronger and more artistic reflection of that American malaise, 
it was yet another nihilistic 1970s movie about the American malaise, showing us essentially that life was shit and the system was broken and nobody could fix it. Rocky, on the other hand, was the ray of sunlight that lifted people out of that malaise, if only for the duration of a movie. At the end of Rocky, as I mentioned, he loses the big title shot, but many viewers, the first time they see the movie, they don't even notice that Rocky lost, because his goal in the movie, as he tells his girlfriend while training for the big fight, is simply to go the distance. His goal is to still be on his feet when the final bell rings, and when, at the end of the match, he is still on his feet, the soundtrack swells with triumphant music because that is the triumph, the simple fact that he's still on his feet. When the announcer of the fight declares his opponent, Apollo Creed, the winner of that fight, it's hard to even hear the verdict over the sound of Rocky's triumphant music and of Rocky calling out for his girlfriend, and that sensibility seemed like such an antidote to the skepticism about a broken 1970s America rather than a reflection of that brokenness. If you don't like the system, this boxing movie said, then focus on yourself. Rocky was only being given his title shot as a kind of gimmick. There was no chance that he could win, and he kind of knew that he wasn't likely to win, and so he set a different goal, which was simply to endure, to prove to himself, to his opponent, to the world, that he wasn't the schlub that he might appear to be, that he was something special, or if not anything particularly remarkable, he just wouldn't allow himself to be kept down. Set your own goals, this movie was saying. Make victory on your terms. And in a way, you can kind of see that movie as a shift toward, like, it came at the end of the 70s, and it's kind of a shift toward the 1980s Reaganite sensibility that followed Carter's administration of kind of every man for himself, seize the day, look sharp, etc. Now, Rocky, the movie, is obviously a masterpiece, and I'm not sure that there exists in the world a bigger fan of the franchise, and someday, mark my words, I will subject you to my 30-minute disquisition on why Rocky II is the best in the series, and also a profound meditation on masculinity and failure. But, that being said, it is not as good a movie as Taxi Driver. From an, from an artistic perspective, I feel like that's basically an empirical fact. Unless you were to say that, in some respects, a filmmaker's ability to tell a good story isn't the thing that steals the day. It's how that story makes the audience feel. And maybe that question depends on whether or not you believe, you know, decisively, that the better art in the world is that which affirms a life and, and helps you to persevere through, through hardship rather than that which achieves, as Philip Roth and, and Anton Chekhov would, would champion, a proper presentation of the problem. Which raises, I think, an interesting question about the purpose of art, or maybe of movies in particular, because one of the things I learned about myself in watching all these old movies for Thousand Movie Project is that even while watching something incredibly artful, something rich with ideas and insight, if the movie was longer than two hours, I would have to do it in two sittings. Partly that's because I was watching these movies in clusters, and there is a cumulative strain to watching so many movies at once, but partly it's because I am less patient with a movie if it isn't actively entertaining me, than I am with a book that is maybe insightful, but not particularly entertaining. And so, while cinema is obviously an art form like, like any other, I, I wonder if it's fair to say of movies, more so than you would say it of novels, maybe, that their foremost utility in the culture is to entertain, to lift people up. 
Back in the early days of literature, from like the dawn of time, it seems that the stories being set down on paper were fucking miserable. It's almost the essence of literary tradition that life is difficult and you should consider yourself lucky that it isn't as bad for you as it was for Job. With movies, on the other hand, the earliest cinematic narratives were like, like, they were basically novelties in the beginning, of course, and so you were supposed to walk away from them feeling buoyant and giggly and irreverent. But then even the early feature-length movies were also about, pretty consistently about good triumphing over evil, about hard work paying off, about the power of love. Like, even when people talk about creating art out of a life story, an artist will write a memoir about how horrible their life was, but we only tend to get biographical movies about people who triumphed over adversity. Dude, speaking of literature like historically just telling stories of like squalor and misery, a couple years ago on a whim, I downloaded some new audiobook version of the fairy tales from the Brothers Grimm. Because I'd never heard, I knew of them, but I'd never heard them. And I guess I have a certain conception of what a fairy tale is supposed to be. Which incidentally, since we were just on the subject of Tarantino, I'll mention something else about that in a minute. But prior to getting that audiobook, I would have said that if a fairy tale, you know, rolls out basically like this. Once upon a time, there was a princess, and the princess wanted to eat a mango, but the mangoes were guarded by a spooky troll. And so one day, the princess went to the troll and said, You are grievously misunderstood, and God loves you despite your terrible posture. Whereupon the troll smiled and revealed that he was God, and God and the princess shared mangoes and made love until dawn. The end. And that's not what the Brothers Grimm fairy tales are like. I honestly thought there was like a mistake or something, like I had bought the wrong thing, because I'm listening to the audiobook and prior to the fairy tales themselves, there was like this rhapsodic, academic introduction about the staying power of these fairy tales and how they're just as relevant today as they were back then. So I heard that introduction and I was like, ah, cool beans. They'll be like allegories with social implications, cute, kid-friendly little things. And then the fairy tales begin and they're all like... Once upon a time there was a squirrel, and the squirrel lived in a tree. Then one day the landlord told the squirrel that he would have to pay more nuts in rent than the squirrel could afford. The squirrel was evicted from his tree, and made to sell his body to a rabbit for sexual indignities for which he was not paid the negotiated price. The squirrel died in squalor and disrepute. Good knocked child, that is the end of the story. They are all miserable. They're uniformly horrible. And they end abruptly and with no discernible insight into anything except what we were talking about, which is the squalor of life in which literature is so keen to bask. Speaking of fairy tales and Quentin Tarantino, and I'll get to my conversation with presidential historian and MSNBC political analyst Jonathan Alter in a moment, but first... Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was my most anticipated movie of 2019, and I had an absolute blast in the theater with it uh, when I went to the first screening on opening night, and then I had a good time with it when I went for a second viewing about a month later. But over the ensuing years, I've watched the movie I think one and a half more times, and it's not quite so magical anymore. But prior to the movie's release, and even like during that first viewing, I was kind of curious about the title. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is clearly a throwback to the famous trilogy of spaghetti westerns by Tarantino's favorite filmmaker, Sergio Leone. Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time a Revolution, and Once Upon a Time in America. But it's also a fairy tale, right? Because that's how fairy tales begin, decisively, is with, with the phrase, Once Upon a Time. And I think that's even 
what Leone was going for in his trilogy. Leone was great at deconstructing genre, and by extension, mythic figures. With the first volume of that trilogy, Once Upon a Time in the West, he's exploring how the heroic American cowboy is a kind of fairy tale figure. Then, in the grievously overlooked middle installment, which is called Once Upon a Time a Revolution, although it's more popularly titled Duck You Sucker, it's also one of my favorite movies, and it's got that line that I almost recorded a whole episode about, where James Coburn, in his Irish accent, he says, I did that only once in my life. Anyway, then, then with the end of that trilogy, Once Upon a Time in America, Leone is showing that the, the flashy story that we tell ourselves in cinema of like the, the American gangster of the 1920s, that is also an American fairy tale. So if we say that Leone, in his trilogy, was deconstructing the fairy tale of the cowboy, of, of the revolutionary, and then of the gangster, and Tarantino is working in that same vein, then it begs to reason that Tarantino here is exploring the fairy tale of Hollywood, of how movies are made and the kinds of people who want to make them and what their motives are for wanting to make them. But someone on Reddit pointed out that the movie has fairy tale ingredients. I can't find this person's comment, but it was like a really comprehensive bullet-pointed breakdown. And, and here's what I remember of it. Sharon Tate, who for the purpose of the movie is a kind of princess figure whom Tarantino rescues with his revisionist history, she lives in a big house at the top of a hill, which brings to mind the image of a princess trapped up in a tower. There's a poisoned object that leads to the climax of the story. For Snow White, it's the apple that puts her to sleep, and for Cliff Booth, it's the LSD cigarette that he bought for like a quarter and that he happens to smoke on the night of the Manson home invasion. Rick Dalton saves the day using a flamethrower, and at one point earlier in the movie, Dalton refers to the flamethrower as a dragon. A dragon, typically, is the thing that's protecting the princess or the treasure or whatever it is that the hero is questing after. And in this movie, in this story, this fairy tale, that is what Rick Dalton is questing for, is the, the professional clout that would come with befriending Sharon Tate and, more specifically, her husband, Roman Polanski. So Rick Dalton is depicted here as both the dragon protecting her and the hero questing after her. So if the dragon is meant to be an obstacle for the hero, and in this case our hero demonstrates the qualities of a dragon, it might suggest that the hero is his own obstacle, that Rick Dalton is standing in his own way of achieving what it is he wants in life, and yeah, he is very self-destructive. As Tarantino mentions in the novelization, Dalton is bipolar. He's also followed around by his visual, his stunt double, a guy who bears some resemblance to him. The idea of a man with two sides is ever-present. Fairy tales tend to have an oracle, somebody who projects a dark future, and this is the role that Al Pacino plays as the agent Marvin Schwarz, who tells Dalton that if he keeps playing the bad guy, his career is going to go down the toilet because there's going to be that flip in their perception. They're going to go from seeing him as the good guy to seeing him as the bad guy. The same man, the same name, the same face, but two different perceptions. Schwarz, with his mystical powers, then projects that Dalton can find real success by making Western movies in Italy. Another nod, overtly, to Sergio Leone, and ultimately, the happy ending that does come to pass. Almost none of which has anything to do with Jonathan Alter or his recent biography of former President Jimmy Carter called His Very Best. Or maybe... maybe it does. When you ask yourself, 
what makes a great president. Similar, you ask yourself, what makes a great piece of cinematic art? Is a great president the person who masterfully executes the job, who, who kind of makes an art of it, who, who, who grasps every issue and, and pushes the country forward, as Scorsese did with Taxi Driver and, and, his, and his medium? Or is the greater president the leader who makes their country feel empowered, same as Rocky did, even though people are actually losing, just as, by empirical standards, Rocky lost? Whatever the case, the, the Academy Award for Best Picture is this major industry award where everybody recognizes that this particular film just sort of captured the hearts of the nation. Jimmy Carter won no such award in the election of 1980. No, that level of veneration was reserved for the actor who took his place. You've got this scene. I don't know if you intended it to be a metaphor, but at the right toward the end of the book it came back to me and it seemed like one where Jimmy Carter during the gas crisis he brings a press pool up to the roof of the White House and he says these are solar panels that we've just installed and he talks about you know how optimistic he is for the future of clean energy and then you say that they were taken down by the Re by the Reagan administration and it, down the line they ended up in a museum and yours although it's the most comprehensive book about Jimmy Carter's presidency of the past few years it's not the only one and it does seem to be carrying the flag for a reappraisal. And I'm wondering if, it, is it Optimus? Like, do you think that he really is going to be slated for a serious reconsideration and that he'll be canonized? Uh, no, I don't think he will ever be uh, on, on Mount Rushmore or, or canonized. Um, his presidency experienced uh, too many failures. He was crushed for re-election when he ran in 1980 uh, against Ronald Reagan. Um, and uh, he's not going to go into the top rank of American presidents. But what I set out to do um, was to reappraise a man I consider to be the most misunderstood and underappreciated president, arguably, in American history, um, that we're, we're just beset with these kind of... Uh, bits of easy shorthand on him, you know, failed president, great ex-president. Anybody you talk to on the street is going to say that. Yeah. And he was not a failure as president. He was a political failure because uh, he wasn't popular and he lost for re-election. And journalists like me, you know, we as journalists judge him politically. How well is he doing politically? But when I put on my hat as a historian, I judge him on a different scale. So while he was a political failure, he was a substantive and often visionary success. And so the reason that I opened the book with the scene of him putting the solar panels on the roof of the White House was to, to suggest to the reader that this was only one of many examples of things that Jimmy Carter did uh, to peer over the horizon and to look at the problems that the country would face down the road. And on that scale, uh, I think he was a, a, a real success. You, you talk about how journalists reacted to his political achievements. I think the those just sort of technically interesting chapter of the book was the one about the Panama Canal. I had no idea this had happened. And it does demonstrate I think it, as his, maybe his most, I don't know if you would agree, his most challenging legislative accomplishment 
it also shows him dealing with people who are so not like him. The politicians who see what the right thing to do is, and they just won't do it. And he doesn't get it. But he, he pulls it off. Could you give sort of a, a, a Sparknotes version of the Panama Canal situation? Well, first of all, I'm so happy that you focused on that because you may be the only person who's interviewed me in the last eight months who has. <laughs> I, I had the same reaction that you did. I didn't know very much about it at all. Carter decided that he would try to get these treaties first signed and then ratified. And this was extraordinarily difficult. Two-thirds of the country was against ratification of the Panama Canal treaties, uh, in part because a former governor of California named Ronald Reagan was making his national reputation in part based on saying, it's our canal, we built it, we're not giving it away. So two-thirds of the country is against the treaties, which turn over control of the canal to the Panamanians. And it requires a two-thirds vote in the Senate, 67 votes to ratify the treaty. So that is the heaviest of heavy lifts. And Carter had to use all of his uh, efforts, and he didn't realize initially how hard it would be to get this done. And a number of senators lost their seats by going along with uh, these treaties. But what most impressed me were the stakes. You know, I, I kind of thought, oh, Panama Canal, who cares? You know, it's not that big of a deal. Well, Aren't as you point out, he avoided another Vietnam. Well, that that's what that's what amazed me, that uh, we would have had to put 100,000 troops in Panama if the treaties were not ratified. Because what would have happened was the... Panamanians would have sabotaged the canal. They were so angry about, you know, what had happened to them having this imposed on them by Yankee imperialists. And then once the first couple acts of sabotage had taken place, then our troops would never have been able to leave because, you know, the canal is vital for global commerce. It, it must be open or we have a global depression, right? So in order to assure that it stayed open, the troops would have to be there in perpetuity. They would probably still be there 40-plus years later. Um, and it would have been an ugly, ugly guerrilla war, you know, in our own hemisphere. Uh, and, and smart Republicans like Howard Baker, who was the Senate Minority Leader, understood this. And where he began in opposition to the treaties after he went to Panama and was briefed and spent a fair amount of time with President Carter, he changed. And that was very important in getting it through, but it was still a extraordinarily close shave. And uh, it's a, the story of the, the ratification is a little bit like the movie Lincoln. There are uh, a number of funny stories. I don't want to belabor this too much, but can I tell you one um, that is my Please. favorite uh, from this period? So California had a senator named S.I. Hayakawa. He was best known for falling asleep on the Senate floor and for wearing a, a beret. Um, and he had, he had gotten elected to the Senate uh, because he was the president of San Francisco State College. He was a professor of 
semantics. He uh, had written a long book about semantics, which I'll get to in a moment. A book that is almost impossible to read, it's so boring. His vote was essential for the treaties, and Howard Baker, the leader of his party, and President Carter and Vice President Mondale hatched a plan to get it. So they had a conference call with Hayakawa sitting in, uh, in uh, Baker's office in the Senate. They patched in the president, and he said, oh, Senator Hayakawa, I would so appreciate it if you would come over and provide me some of your wise counsel on American foreign policy. I'd very much like to meet with you if you could take the time. So Hayakawa was a prideful guy. So yes, of course, he goes over there and he has a long meeting with Carter and uh, he gives Carter uh, his book, and um, but not his vote, not yet. So then uh, Carter calls him up to lobby him and um, He's, he has to be the only American president who would have actually read the book overnight. And Hayakawa, of course, questions him closely on it to make sure he's read the book and, and Carter passes the test and, you know, bullshits about semantics, whatever was in chapter 17. And um, he still doesn't have his vote. Then uh, Hayakawa says, well, um, uh, Mr. President, I'd like to come over and give you my wise counsel uh, every fortnight, every two weeks. So Carter, he says, oh, Senator Hayakawa, I could never, never limit it to just uh, every other week. I, I would need to have you available for your wise counsel at any moment <laughs> I, I need it. So let's, let's keep it that way. And Hayakawa goes, oh, wow, okay. Maybe I'll be going over there every few days. And he votes for the Panama Canal treaties. They passed by one vote. Of course, that was the last time S.I. Hayakawa ever spoke to Jimmy Carter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that story. And that's why that was one of the things that made it one of the most salient chapters of the book is that, as you were saying, the bullshitting. That is so not Carter. Not just the insincerity, but giving someone the floor. Um, you, you well, cite instances where, for instance, his youngest son, Jeff, was remiss to tell his father that he was studying computers because he thought it would trigger um, Carter's competitiveness and that he, too, would dive into computers. Yes. Carter's very competitive with his own children, but he's also, he's very tough. And while uh, he, he, you know, as he promised in his campaign, famously, he did not lie. There are no five Pinocchio whoppers that you can find. Right. He did bullshit sometimes and exaggerate. This idea that he's such a humble man, I mean, a humble politician is a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron, right? <laughs> so, you know, you, he's not humble. He is modest in the way he lives. I just got back, my wife from Plains, we were there um, um, to help them celebrate their 75th wedding anniversary, which is really an extraordinary achievement. I mean, only 6% of all marriages last 50 years, and there are no statistics on how many last 75. They've been married longer than Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip and almost every oh, wow. on the face of the earth. And, you know, I was struck again by just how modest they modestly they live. I mean, this time I didn't go to their house, but, you know, the assessed valuation of their house is $210,000 and he's made all the furniture in the house. He's a very skilled uh, 
woodworker and carpenter and and I try to paint a very um, complex portrait of a complex man so it's it's warts and all but the core decency to the man comes through and and I tried you know I got um, Mrs. Carter was kind enough to give me his love letters from the Navy <clears throat> which um, are the most intimate ever exchanged between a future president and future first lady and uh, and that uh, that kind of thing really gave me the sort of insight that I needed into who he was as a person because I, I was trying to kind of peel away some of the layers and some of the myths about him to get to a an extraordinarily uh, complex individual. I, I definitely felt that was the case and I think it's there's something about the the book divides so neatly into three different phases. The beginning is is very much as I had told you earlier, it's got a Steinbeck vibe of his country upbringing. And then there's the politics that occupies the majority of his life. And then at the end, he's still involved in politics. But you realize the enormity of that brain, the enormity of that sense of self. Once it was removed from the white noise of Washington, once he was alone again in planes and lamenting that he was not being sent on more peacemaking missions, it seemed like here's a man being alone with himself in a way. Oh, he's not alone. But it's just, that's how I was reading his perpetual busyness, his collection of hobbies, his woodworking, his painting, his, you know, constant activity. And it, it ends on a novelistic note. Um, oh, I'm like glad to hear that. I do think he has an epic novelistic life. I mean, I, I, I hadn't thought of Steinbeck, but I, I think there's some um, kind of a Mark Twain, uh, Huckleberry Finn quality to his his early life and also Tobacco Road. This is an epic journey of a of a man who I argue really lived in three centuries effectively. He you know he was born with no running water and, and electricity in his house. It might as well have been the 19th century. And then um, not poor but with lacking many of the things we associate with the 20th century. Then of course uh, you know, a big life as president involved in all the major uh, developments of the 20th century. Um, and as a former president, you know, he works, what does he work on? You know, democracy promotion, global health, dispute resolution. These are the cutting edge issues of the 21st century, which until very recently he was actively involved on. Yeah, when you, you're mentioning his campaign for governor, and how he kind of had to play both sides of the aisle. Um, there was some dog whistle language there to sort of suggest that he, you know, yeah. was opposed to integration. And it, it, and then once he was elected, of course, he completely flipped the script. It had been a calculated thing. When I got in touch with you, I mentioned that I had just read and kind of fell in love with a book that I didn't know Walter Isaacson had written, a huge biography of Kissinger, which came out in 1992. Yeah. And because Isaacson was, like you, a reporter prior to becoming a, a historian, there's a long section about Kissinger's relationship with the press. You don't have something like that, but it does seem like a running theme in this book, and it's one of the most heartbreaking. In you know, By the end of the book, when you're looking at just the individual, is the press got it wrong. It seems consistently the press misunderstood Jimmy Carter. But I'm wondering, given your background as a reporter, and given that over the past few years, it seems you've shifted mostly to writing history. I'm wondering 
if you feel less confidence or more confidence in interpreting and judging the executive actions of the current moment. I saw you giving, I heard you on a podcast, giving some solid insights into Biden's first 100 days, but that's a little bit different because he compares himself to FDR, you wrote about FDR, but I'm wondering, do the historian reflex and the journalist reflex in your mind kind of clash when it comes to looking at the modern world? It's a great question. Uh, you mentioning Walter Isaacson's chapter on um, Kissinger and the press uh, gave me a, a flashback. You know, sometimes there are moments when somebody older than you does a favor for you or something for you that is very helpful for your self-confidence and your, your future and whatever uh, endeavor you're pursuing. And so in, around 1991, when he was working on that book and I was the media critic for Newsweek, Walter, who I didn't know well, sent me that chapter before publication to see what I thought of it. <laughs> and I can still remember just being so honored, you know, and, and <laughs> really, and I thought about including a, a chapter on Carter and the Press, but decided instead to lace it through the whole narrative. And my basic um, feeling about it is that um, Carter was made and unmade by Watergate. Immediately after he comes in, you get the post-Watergate press, which kind of assumes that anybody in office must be like Nixon, that he must be hiding something. And so as Jody Powell's press secretary uh, put it, uh, we didn't, uh, not only did we not have a honeymoon, we didn't even have a one-night stand with the press. <laughs> it's true. When I looked at the coverage, I mean, even, you know, he pardons draft dodgers. So what does the press say? Well, he didn't, he didn't uh, pardon draft deserters, and they were more poor than the people who could afford to go to Canada, right? So it was kind of like in the no good deed goes unpunished from the very, very beginning. Uh, and then it, it basically just got worse from there. And he never caught a break and the press focused on trivia. And I think it's for the reason that I went, I mentioned earlier, which is that when you're a reporter, you're, you're really judging the president politically. That's the corner of the realm. It's a, it's a, it's a game of some kind. And this is something that is really a problem that is embedded in, in the American media, that we, we cover it as sports. When you're a historian, or if you're trying to do what I call contemporary history and look at contemporary figures with some context and historical perspective, then you don't just look at whether they're having a good week or not, or whether they made a gaffe. You're looking at what are they doing to change the country? You know, and and what are they doing to master the tools that you need to change the country? And you're you're assessing them in a different way. Um, and so um, I, I think I started to try to do that in my Newsweek column in the 90s to try to look at people like Bill Clinton, Al Gore, you know, Newt Gingrich with some sense of historical context. But too often, I, like so many of my colleagues, fell prey to this kind of theater criticism of uh, 
politics or sports coverage of politics instead of a historical coverage of politics. And that lends to a couple questions about the Camp David chapter. You mentioned that when Jimmy Carter had an Egyptian and Israeli leader over to the presidential retreat to try to hammer out a peace deal, one of the conditions for his embarking on that task is it had to be absolutely leak-proof. And as you point out in your book, it could never have happened today. Right. And in, I'm currently reading the third volume of Robert Caro's biography of Johnson, and he says of Lyndon Johnson's time in the Senate, yes, the, the fact that it was all behind closed doors and smoke-filled rooms, that made it more corrupt, but it also made th- helped things get done. Do you think that the inevitable transparency of a digital age stunts political progress in some respects because, you know, Jimmy Carter or the president of today cannot maybe do what Jimmy Carter did, for instance, in bullshitting that the guy with the beret who felt his his wise counsel was needed. Well, I think he could still bullshit Asai Hayakawa, the guy with the beret. Um, and there's plenty that goes on behind the scenes that we won't learn about for a while. I mean, I learned this... Oh, ex- excuse me. The, the other line that in your book that cemented it was that, I think it was the Panama Canal Senate debate, it was the first radio broadcasted debate, and the fact that the senators were being heard on the air made them double down on their positions because were they ever were they ever to change their mind later they would seem as be seen as having no spine right so that's the period um, when uh, c-span is you know not right then but the era when you start having more consistent coverage remember cable news doesn't start until uh, 1980 so you don't have this cable coverage it was tiny at the end of the Carter administration and you don't have people um, crimping for the cameras the way they do today, but there were a lot more newspapers. And so they were even then very conscious of the way they were coming across in public. I, I, I wouldn't put um, the lack of secrecy high on my list of reasons why I think we have such poisonous politics today. I, I think it's more related to developments inside what was once properly known as the Grand Old Party, you know, a a very noble party tradition that somewhere along the line got turned into something different. So, I mean, what struck me more in, in terms of the differences is what the Republican leadership was like then. And Carter put together not one or two, but dozens of bipartisan coalitions. Often he would have lost, say, Southern Democrats, but he had so many Northern moderate Republicans that he could get his legislation through. And the leaders of the Republican Party in the Congress were Howard Baker, who I mentioned, who uh, Carter thanked him for doing the right thing. And Baker said, if I do the right thing anymore, I'm not gonna get reelected. You know, nowadays, contrast that to a senator from the neighboring state named Mitch McConnell, you know, and the way he operates. Um, So that's the big contrast. Often, Carter had more trouble, as he told me, inside his own party than he had with the Republicans. So, for instance, Ted Kennedy ran against him for the nomination in 1980. That was disastrous. 
And I, I feel bad that at that time, I, I was for Ted Kennedy. I was just out of college and I thought, oh, Kennedy's more liberal, I'm for him. That was dumb in retrospect. And it was, it was fine for Kennedy to run, but when he lost the Iowa caucuses in the New Hampshire primary, after the hostages were seized and there was a kind of a rally around the flag for Carter, at that point is even a number of Kennedy relatives felt he should have dropped out. Instead, he went all the way to the convention. And this is part of what gave us Reagan. That reminds me, I had never heard of the October surprise conspiracy. I don't know if you would call it a conspiracy theory, but that you present on the eve of, of your chronicle of the election that maybe Reagan back-channeled to the Iranians saying, hold the hostages until I become president so that it will look, it'll cast disfavor on Carter. Was I reading that correctly? Yeah, so um, this was a huge thing in the 80s and 90s, and there were a lot of conspiracy theories about it. It has not been definitively established. But a few years ago, a document came out that uh, lent more credence to it um, than it had before. Uh, but that was before this latest document came out. What the document showed is that William Casey, who was Reagan's campaign manager and later his director of the CIA. In the summer of 1980, he was at a history conference in London, and a lot of the conspiracy theories turned on whether he made a secret trip to Madrid and met with Iranians there to hammer out this deal where if they didn't let the hostages out before the election, that you know they would be looked on favorably after Reagan became president. And indeed, it wasn't that long before we were shipping arms to Iran under Reagan. It was much earlier than Iran-Contra. One of the things I learned was that we started shipping arms to Iran through Israel as early as 1981, the first year of the Reagan administration. But um, for years, conspiracy theorists and then people tried to debunk the conspiracy theory, including people at my magazine, Newsweek, we're trying to figure out, did Casey go to Madrid? And um, uh, about five years ago, um, a document emerged that established that Casey had been in Madrid. It didn't establish that he made these promises to the Iranians, as some of them have, have claimed, uh, but it took us partway to some uh, confirmation of that idea. And, and uh, historians will argue about it forever, and nobody will ever be able to determine for sure what happened. Well, if only as a sort of piece of apocrypha. It was a really fascinating part of the book. And I just have two more questions. The other one about Camp David Accord. It is such a complex chapter, but you do such a great job at distilling the conflicts into a single chapter. And I'm wondering at what point in your research on something so endless as... Middle Eastern conflicts. Um, I don't know if you read John Nixon's account of debriefing Saddam Hussein um, after, after he was captured, but he said when interrogating Saddam Hussein, every time they would ask him something like, why did you make this political maneuver or military maneuver in the 1980s? He would say, you know, I have to take you back to the year two. <laughs> and he would recount hundreds of years of, of conflict because he really did feel that his actions were not foretold in a mystical way, but they were predicated on things that had happened generations prior. And I'm wondering, first of all, how long did it take you to write that 
chapter. I got a feeling it was the most complicated of the book to construct. And also, at what point, how much research do you do before you throw your hands up and say, there are still libraries to be consumed on the matter, but I've, I've played my role? Those are both great questions. And the answer is a lot of time. And then my wife didn't like one of the early drafts. And so I did yet another rewrite of that chapter, shortening it and and uh, making the narrative move along more because it's easy to get caught in the weeds on something like Camp David. But um, this takes me back to a, uh, a question that you asked earlier that I didn't really properly answer. So I think until now, historians and uh, readers have given Carter credit for Camp David. Oh, he did Camp David, he did one great thing. And one of the things that I was trying to do was to show, and I think there are now a, a couple of other books that are very much in the same vein. Uh, mine was the first biography and, and arguably the most complete, but there, there is other work now being done, and including a book that came out a few years ago by a Carter aide that puts more meat on the bones of these other accomplishments. But for me, it started with Camp David. So people ask, you know, how did I decide to write this book? And the answer is that I was lucky enough in my book club in New York City to, to see Jimmy Carter. I had interviewed him for Newsweek many years ago. I'd been an intern in his White House, but I, I didn't know him. And he came that night because we were reading a very good book called 13 Days in September in our book group. And Carter himself came. And he was so brilliant that night in 2014 that I thought anybody who could pull off this virtuoso performance at Camp David, there's got to be more to him than crappy president, great former president. Right. Yeah. And, and sure enough, there was, but even within the Camp David story, I was just so impressed by, by his persistence, his willingness to, he was much criticized for too much attention to detail. It paid off when both Sadat and Begin, who, as you say, it starts thousands of years ago, their disagreement, and they fought four wars against each other, their countries, just since 1948. They're all, each one at different times is packed and ready to leave the conference. And it's only Carter's skill that brings them together. And then I found out something that I just didn't know. And that is that the whole conference fell apart. Camp David fell apart. It was, uh, the accords were signed in September of 1978 after 13 days of Camp David. And by the end of the year, it seemed like they were dead. American Jews, unfortunately, and I'm Jewish, they were telling Begin, oh, you got taken to the cleaners. You're giving back too much of the Sinai. Why are you doing, you know, the whole thing fell apart. So six months later, in March of 1979, when he is in the middle of really significant issues like the Iranian Revolution, before the hostages were seized, but like got a lot else to do, Carter, at great risk, goes back to the region, all of his aides, just as they had told him not to go to Camp David in the first place, they said, you're investing too much of your personal prestige in this. It's not gonna work. You can't put this deal back together. You're gonna come home in failure. And he said, I'm going, it's that important to me. And he, you know, he basically puts the whole thing back together with duct tape and chewing gum 
Um, and then Begin and Sadat come to Washington and they sign this treaty, which is the most durable treaty since World War II, and, and arguably the most important. And to my, uh, my Jewish friends who despise Jimmy Carter, as, as many Jews do, because he's very pro-Palestinian, Jimmy Carter, by doing that, did more for the security of the state of Israel than any president, with the exception of Harry Truman, who first recognized Israel's right to exist. So it's a, it's a kind of an epic story uh, of an engineer with a humanist struggling to get out. You know, he writes poetry, he paints. He's trying to lead uh, a, a full life. And I don't think he does it, in answer to an earlier question, I don't think he does it to ward off loneliness. I think he does it because he sees self-improvement and improvement for the human species as the highest order of things you can do with your life. And you know the line from John Wesley, who I compare Carter to a little bit, the founder of, of Methodism, you know, that Methodists should do as much as they can for as many as they can for as long as they can. And that's, that's what Jimmy and Rosalind Carter have, have tried to do with their lives. One of the, and you, you display it beautifully, and one of the impressions I'd had when I first picked up the book and what I, what I had sort of jokingly expected, but half sincerely, is that any life story of Jimmy Carter would be a thousand pages and the presidency would end on page 600. <laughs> and the last 300 would be about philanthropic work because he's done so much of it. You don't do that at all. And your book is as riveting from the beginning as it, to the end. And his post-presidency, is a com it's a compressed telling. But we see what you're referring to, the subsequent triumphs and failures in his efforts to be a peacemaker. After the Jimmy Carter book, I read your book about FDR's first hundred days. I was surprised to learn a lot of things, such as that FDR gave notes on a screenplay uh, when he was an incumbent. And as a part of the premise of this podcast is um, I'm watching a thousand one movies from a textbook kind of thing in chronological order, the greatest ever made, starting in 1902, going to um, 2013. My two favorite decades are the 1930s and 1970s. And since you've written two very hefty books on those two areas, I was wondering if you could give if you could name a couple of movies that best reflect FDR's 100 Days and Carter's time in the White House, the American moment. So uh, the movie that you referred to that FDR gave notes on was called Gabriel Over the White House. And it uh, starred Walter Houston as a, uh, a president who basically assumes dictatorial powers amid a depression. Um, and part of my book is about how Roosevelt decided not to assume dictatorial powers, um, even though a lot of people wanted him to be a dictator. And, and the Walter Houston character, father of John Houston, by the way, he's heroic for um, going extra legal, extra constitutional. And it gives you a sense of, of how uh, 2021 is not the only time when democracy was really on the line. You know, this is going to sound like a not so humble brag, but I had a really good week this week because it was a photograph that was taken by the White House photographer of President Biden at at his desk and behind me, behind him on on the, uh, on a table is the defining moment in my book about Oh my god, I didn't notice that. He said um, he said uh, during the campaign on Brene Brown's podcast, he gave me a shout out and he said he was 
rereading this book, and the reason he's so interested in it is because I describe how fragile democracy was in 1933. And, and obviously, Biden believes there are many comparisons. I believe there are significant good comparisons between Biden and FDR. And this movie, Gabriel of the White House, really conveys that, uh, how much people wanted a dictator in 1933. As far as Carter goes, uh, I would cite two movies. One is a movie that came out during his campaign, uh, is, and it's called Nashville, Robert Altman's Nashville. And there's a uh, uh, character running for president who uh, attacks lawyers. He's an outsider. I think his name is Hal Scott Walker, maybe. And uh, you mostly just hear about him through megaphones. A lot of the language that that candidate uses is very similar to what Carter was using on the campaign trail in, in 1976. Uh, and um, uh, so I, I asked Carter whether he was influenced by Robert Altman's film Nashville, and he said no, but there are certain people who worked on his campaign who say, well, he's not remembering right, and, and actually you know, it was, <laughs> it was mostly serendipity, but there were that's where the country was then. They were really ready for an outsider and a film about an outsider running for president. Um, you do show that he and Rosalind were cinephiles and watched about a movie a week. Yes, the they watched, well, it looks like they watched a movie a week because the logs show them watching more movies every year than any other American president. But I found out later that a lot of it was their uh, kids uh, oh, <laughs> uh, Jeff were living there much of the time, and Amy was was only uh, you know between ten and thirteen years old. She was watching a certain number of them too, but they did watch uh, a lot of them. And there's a funny story I tell in the book about when uh, Francis Ford Coppola came over to show them Apocalypse Now, and Carter wasn't really sure whether the movie was over or not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, the other movie that I think was very relevant for the Carter administration was The China Syndrome with Jack Lemmon and Jane Fonda. That movie came out only days before the uh, accident at Three Mile Island, which you know ended up being a pivotal moment in, uh, in the recent history of uh, American energy usage because it basically ended period of commissioning new nuclear power plants. And Carter, who had been in the nuclear Navy, he went there, knew everything about it. He was completely on top of it. He had established FEMA earlier, and so their uh, evacuation plans were spot on. I mean, the way Carter would have handled the pandemic, we. We would, oh, I hadn't even considered that. We would, You're right. had, we, we would have had maybe 100,000 instead of 600,000 who died. Because th that was the kind of thing that he was talking yeah. about. Of course, because the press was so hard on Car Carter, all that you remember are he's wearing these silly-looking yellow booties when he goes into the plant, you know. Right. Uh, and it turned out that, as he, as he figured out fairly early, it really wasn't a meltdown. It was not a Chernobyl. And it was not um, as bad as the American public feared at the time. And one of the reasons they feared it was because they had just seen this Jane Fonda movie. Right. And one of the things your book is clearly combating is hearsay history. 
you know, the, the notion that Jimmy Carter, as everyone heard, here's the tagline, great man, brilliant, not fit for the presidency. I was had always just un, been under the impression that I'd heard Three Mile Island catastrophe, and I, I, I don't know why, I was long under the impression that it was a catastrophe, but as you point out in your book, nothing really happened. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't that bad. Um, but uh, a lot else happened to him, and he was swamped by events, arguably. Uh, less that than, you know, he had a very bad economy and the hostages hadn't come home. He was challenged by Ted Kennedy. I think the economy is, is really the central factor in his, in his uh, defeat. And that was arguably because of the Arab oil embargo, those long lines at gas stations right. that the optics popularity down into the 20s. That wasn't Carter's fault. You know, that happened because of what was going on with, you know, um, oil prices in a 10-year period going up 14-fold, not 14%, 14-fold. And, and so what does Carter do about it? Well, he appoints Paul Volcker to be chair of the Federal Reserve. And Volcker, in order to end this ruinous inflation, uh, jacks up interest rates. Uh, they went as high as 19%. Can you imagine trying to buy a house when interest rates are 19% or expand your business when they're 17, 15%? And that really contributed to Carter's defeat. But then Volcker's harsh medicine worked, and this terrible inflation was wrung out of the economy just in time for Ronald Reagan running for re-election. So uh, I, I asked Volcker, who I interviewed not long before he died, and, and you know I interviewed 250 people for this book beyond Carter and Mondale. And uh, I said, you know, people say that you both elected and re-elected Ronald Reagan. And Volcker said, you know, people have said that to me and I understand the argument. But Volcker, who was a, uh, a Republican, but a, a very big admirer of Jimmy Carter, said that on a fishing trip a few years after Carter left the presidency, he asked him, he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry if I uh, cost you re-election. And um, Carter said, um, there were many factors, and I think Carter was right about that. Yeah, you and you recount that 1980 election with, um, or was it 81? 1980 election, yeah. 1980 election with such suspense, it's such a tightrope. It's uh, it achieves that thing that history seldom do, which makes it made me forget the actual outcome because the hot potato of success is passing so frantically back and forth between him and Kennedy on the trail and then just as Kennedy backs out the specter of Reagan rears up it, it was there was such momentum in that telling you you really pulled off something that of all characters I could not have anticipated a very propulsive biography of Carter although as you point out in your very introduction that was the the wrong impression that you were trying to divest your readers of and you do a terrific job and I see that I've occupied you for way longer than I promised I would. Um, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. I love the book. I would strongly recommend it to people who, like myself, are kind of new to American history. It's very friendly. Um, doesn't demand that you know what these things are. And uh, yeah, just want to thank you so much for your time and for the terrific reading experience. You're so welcome. I'm so grateful that you had me on. been listening to the thousand movie project podcast and if you like the show and plan on sticking around you'll be hearing a lot more of it in weeks to come since for at least a while i'm going to be working on the podcast as a kind of 
part-time job. And if you'd like to support the show and me in that respect, you can check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash thousandmovieproject, where there are four tiers of rewards, or if you'd like a free way to support the show, you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcast and leave a favorable review. I just saw there's like 34 positive reviews, and each one bolsters our standing in the charts and helps to attract more listeners. It bolsters visibility. So that would be a tremendous help. And if you point me toward your positive review, I'll be sure to send you one of the rewards that you might otherwise get for becoming a Patreon donor. Yes, if you leave a positive review for Thousand Movie Project Podcasts on iTunes, send it my way through Instagram or the website, and I will send you a handwritten doodlesome thank you note. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon.